0: Alright, if you'll take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Ezekiel. We will be in chapter 39 tonight. Chapter 39. Let's begin by reading the first 16 verses. And you, son of man, prophesy against Gog, and say, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O Gog, chief prince of Meshach and Tubal, and I will turn you about and drive you forward, and bring you up from the uttermost parts of the north, and lead you against the mountains of Israel. Then I will strike your bow from your left hand, and I will make your arrows drop out of your right hand. You shall fall on the mountains of Israel, you and all of your hordes, and the peoples who are with you. I will give you to birds of prey in every sort, and to the beasts of the field to be devoured." You shall fall in the open field, for I have spoken, declares the Lord God. I will send fire on Magog and on those who dwell securely in the coastlands, and they shall know that I am the Lord. In my holy name I will make known in the midst of my people Israel, and I will not let my holy name be profaned any more. And the nations shall know that I am the Lord, the Holy One in Israel. Behold, it is coming, and it will be brought about, declares the Lord God. That is the day of which I have spoken." Then those who dwell in the cities of Israel will go out and make fires of the weapons and burn them, shields and bucklers, bows and arrows, clubs and spears, and they will make fires of them for seven years, so that they will not need to take wood out of the field or cut down any of the forests, for they will make their fires of the weapons. They will seize the spool of those who despoiled them and plunder those who plundered them, declares the Lord God. On that day I will give to Gog a place for burial in Israel, the valley of, tra- of the travelers east of the sea. It will block the travelers for their Gog and his, all his multitude will be buried. It will be called the valley of gog For seven months the house of Israel will, will be burying them in order to cleanse the land. All the people of the land will bury them and it will bring them renown on the day that I show my glory, declares the Lord God. They will set apart men to travel through the land regularly and bury those travelers remaining on the face of the land so as to cleanse it. At the end of seven months, they will make their search. And when these, travel, when these travel through the land, and anyone sees a human bone, then he shall set up a sign by it, till the barriers have buried, buried it in the valley of God. Hem- Hemanah is also the name of the city, thus shall they cleanse the land. We'll stop there for the moment. We are going to cover the entire chapter tonight, but we'll take it in three separate sections. The, uh, the title of my sermon tonight is Carnage Cleanup. You could probably see that just in those seven, first 17 verses, where that comes from. But carnage cleanup is the, the name of my sermon. Uh, now chapter 39 is really just a continuation of the prophecy that we had in chapter 38. Where chapter 38 gave us the setting of the battle, though, and, and the battle itself, chapter 39, it really gives us more of the aftermath of that and the application to Israel herself and to the world of what that battle will be. I think it's important that we keep this context in mind, though, as we work through this chapter, and as we remember, we remember chapter, chapter 38 some, while working through pro- prophetic passages, we need to always keep context in mind. But as Ralph Alexander, uh, Ralph Alexander describes about these two chapters, this is a series of oracles that was given to, the entourage, or to encourage the exiles that ultimately God would remove these invaders and restore this land to Israel. Then he will enter into a covenant of peace with Israel as described back in chapters 34 and 37. So as we look at the context, look at who this is written to, we keep that in mind. We look at that original audience, why this was written. I think that we'll have a better understanding of the application of this passage as we work through it. And so it is important for us to remember, again, this was written to These exiles, these exiles from Israel who were in Babylon, it was written to encourage them as they had been taken out of their land. Invaders sat on their land at this point, the promised land which God had had given them, promised to them, told them they would inherit forever. It is given to them to encourage them and remind them that there is this this covenant still between Yahweh and Israel. And God is always going to hold up His end of His promises, of His covenant. Now, I think it's important... As we dig into this too, and there's a little bit of work I'm going to put in on the front end here in the intro before we dig into the passages itself, but I think it's important for us to kind of be on the same page about the end-time prophecy. At least on the same page as to where the elders stand on the overall eschatological timeline. Okay. So, with that being said, the elders here, we hold an eschatological timeline in which we believe that Scripture teaches There is a coming time of judgment which will come on the whole world. And before I dig into this, this is by far not an exhaustive explanation, okay? Um, This is just hitting some main points that I think will be beneficial for us. Uh, If you want to get more details and and have a much deeper explanation, we preach through the book of Revelation. Uh, Daniel's been preached on by Todd. Uh, You have a a much deeper explanation of some of the end time prophecy and, and a lot that's mentioned. But just as an overall view... Again, we believe that there will be a period of time where judgment will come on the entire world. A period of seven years, which is commonly referred to as the tribulation period. Jesus referred to it in Matthew and John in Revelation as the time of great tribulation that will come upon the whole world. It is also referred to in Daniel, and I think this is important, as the time of Jacob's trouble. A time in which... Jacob or the house of Israel, the the people of Israel, will be the main focus, the the part of main focus of that persecution, and that persecution has a direct point specific to Israel. God will use this tribulation or this time of trouble to turn the hearts of the people of Israel as a nation once again to him in order to prepare them to receive Jesus, their Messiah. Now, the first three and a half years of this seven-year period. Will be a time of peace, a time of, of false peace, but it will be a time of peace which has been forged between the Antichrist and specifically Israel. But halfway through this seven year period, the Antichrist, he's going to break this peace agreement that he has with Israel. And he will come in, he will desecrate the temple in Jerusalem. He will declare himself to be God. He will then wage war against Israel and really against anyone who refuses to bow the knee to Him and to take the mark of the beast from that point forward. His focus in persecution and war, though, will be the people of Israel. This great war, this great persecution, will stretch then roughly that latter three and a half years of the tribulation period. At the end of the second half, that that last three and a half years of this seven-year period, it will end ultimately with a final battle which will happen when a great army gathers in the valley of Megiddo with the purpose of destroying Israel entirely. And also, as we learned when we went through Revelation, with the express purpose of going to war with Yahweh Himself. Jesus, though, will return with the armies from heaven to deliver Israel and to destroy that great army. And then He will set up His earthly kingdom, often referred to as the Millennial Kingdom. And He will reign then, literally, from David's throne there in Israel. Jesus will then reign for that 1000 years from the throne of David as promised and prophesied. He will become the future king that from the line of David, nations and people groups will start will still exist and the nation of Israel will be restored during that for that period and the old, as the old testament old testament promises over and over which we have often read, we have studied, we've preached through that will be fulfilled in that kingdom. Jesus will be king, not only of Israel, but of all the world. At His return, Jesus will throw Satan into a bottomless pit where he will be chained for a thousand years, unable to deceive and work evil in the hearts of men and women as He has since the fall of man. As a result of this, of Satan being chained during that period of time, the reign, and also because of the reign of Christ, this thousand years, this, this millennial kingdom, will be a time of unsurpassed peace. Men and women will live long lives, much longer than we know now. Even the animal kingdom will be at peace with one another or with each other and with men. This thousand year reign though will not be the eternal ages. Okay? The earth will still be the same earth as it has been before just with many positive restoration changes. Sin and death will not have been defeated as of, as of yet as far as defeated for eternal, the eternal ages. Mortal men and women will still have their sin nature and children will be born in this period which will still, they will still be born with a sin nature. That's important because at the end of this thousand year reign, we believe that Scripture teaches Satan will be released from his prison that thousand year, or that, that bottomless pit where he'd been chained and he will be allowed then to roam the earth again for a short period. Satan will know that his time is short, though, and he will quickly gather another army from the four corners of the earth, so from all over the earth, and he will march one more time against Yahweh there in Jerusalem in an effort to to defeat God. In this battle, which is no battle really at all, fire will come down from heaven and consume that entire army. Satan and all of his followers at that point will be cast into the eternal lake of fire well, they will stay where they will stay for all eternity. At that point, a new heaven and a new earth will replace the current version of earth, and all of God's children will live eternally in the presence of God, never again to know sin, death, or sorrow any longer. Okay, that was a very hurried, you may not have felt that way, but it was a very hurried and brief summation of what we believe to be future prophecy concerning the return of Christ, His kingdom, and the eternal ages, and how that applies to Israel and to the world as a whole. It is important for our passage tonight, though, and back in, in chapter 38, as we believe that there will be two major battles in which will be staged against Israel and in Israel, where incredibly large and numerous armies will come against Israel and Yahweh. One, which I mentioned earlier, culminates at the end of this seven-year tribulation period, and one which will happen towards the end of the thousand-year reign of, of Jesus right prior to the, uh, the eternal ages being set in. So with that in mind, as Brian mentioned last week as he got into chapter 38, which again is the first part of this prophecy, this prophecy I, I agree that this prophecy, this battle described both in chapter 38 and the aftermath of which in chap- we have in chapter 39, it better fits the battle which will take place towards the end of the tribulation period. And it is best understood that way as we work through this passage. So for the last three and a half years of this tribulation period, after that peace treaty is broken, wherein the nation of Israel had been living in peace there for that period of time. Now, a false false sense of security, a false sense of peace. They had been living in peace. But during that last three and a half years, war will be waged against them. We have every reason to think that this war will be waged over that entire three-and-a-half-year period, really. And uh, in, in different stages, probably, in different locations. I mean, most wars, if you think about it, most wars or military campaigns, they last for years, don't they? They're not just a day and that's it. Uh, we can see this just in our modern day in the war between Ukraine and Russia. I mean, that's it's already gone on for a couple of years, right? Scripture lists at, th- at least three different places in which nations and battles will take place against Israel in these, these end times, these latter times. Our passage mentions here the, the mountains of Israel. Isaiah 34 mentions the mountains of Edom. Joel 3 in Revelation mentions the valley of Jehoshaphat. Ultimately, the war will, will culminate in the valley of Megiddo again, as I've mentioned, known as that, that battle of, at, the, at Armageddon. The very battle and army that we see in our passage, passage, I think, should be seen as a part of this war, and that, that final battle, I think. What we see in, or what we saw in that last chapter, chapter 38, was a series of events which led to a complete and devastating defeat of this large army which had, had gathered against Israel, right in the mountains of Israel. We saw back in chapter 38 in verse, or verse 19 that he, God begins this, this battle, this defeat of this army by bringing a great earthquake, one which would be not only felt there in Israel, but also around the entire world and would cause mountains and cliffs and walls to tumble down in the land of Israel. This earthquake and, and tumbling of mountains and cliffs will presumably cause great rocks to fall towards and on this army, causing great death and confusion. In verse 21 of chapter 38, in this pandemonium of this great natural disaster which God will bring about, there will be, I'm sure, a major problem with communication. There will be a major confusion, major fear, which will have come against these armies of Israel, and that will cause them to begin to turn on each other. They will begin to attack each other, and they will cause major death just attacking each other. And then in verse 22, it goes on to say that this, uh, this destruction of this army will continue through the disease, through torrential rains, hailstones, and fire and sulfur that will be brought down by God on this army. So, there we saw the battle plan of God, right? We saw the, the final destruction. And then it is it's utter confusion for this, this army. It's utter destruction which had been brought about on this army through supernatural acts. If you, you noticed last week, and as I went through that, there's no mention of an army coming against this invading army or, or other men standing against them, right? I mean, this battle will be won entirely by God. And there will be no question about that. There will be no question who brought this destruction. So beginning in verse 1, after the, the, the battle, God is still addressing Gog. He's still addressing this chief prince of Meshach or, or Tubal. Or Meshach and Tubal. Now, Brian mentioned last week that Gog could be an actual name, but it's more likely a a title of a leader, kind of like we think of Pharaoh or Caesar. Not specifically a name, just the title of a leader of an area. And, And the emphasis of Gog here being called the chief prince, I think could be seen in connection to him. And his influence or Satan's influence over him. Uh, Satan's often referred to as as the prince or ruler of this world, right? He's he's referred to as the prince and ruler of this world in John 30, 12 31 and in John 14.30. We know that this leader is wicked and he is acting in accordance with Satan's desires to destroy the people of God, and we know for certain, uh, as if we're thinking along the lines of the, the tribulation period, that the Antichrist himself will be a leader who will be acting in accordance with the desires of Satan. So it is easy to make that connection here and see that that Satan is is a a driving force in the wickedness of this this Gog. Verse 2, God tells Gog that He, Yahweh, He would turn him about, which is again a repeat of what He said back in chapter 38. The implication meaning that God will direct the path of Gog and His armies. He will drive him forward. He will bring him up. So we see here three times And in three different ways that God is said to be in control of Gog. He is directing Gog's path, where he's going, from the north to the mountains of Israel. Look, Gog, whether he is the Antichrist or he's just some other wicked leader at this point who is coming against Israel, they will be acting according to their own desires. Make no mistake about that. They will desire to go against Israel and to destroy the nation and the people of Israel. They will go because of their hatred, his hatred for them, and again, his desire to destroy them. In fact, if this is the Antichrist, he will believe that his move against Israel will somehow hinder or destroy God's plans, God's people, which is, again, an ultimate desire and plan of Satan, purpose of Satan himself. But much like the crucifixion of Christ, the best laid plans of Satan to destroy Christ... And to destroy the plans of God have never and will never be successful. It may appear that way. It may look that way from human eyes, but it is not ever successful and will never be successful. God oftentimes uses those plans, these wicked plans, to fulfill his own sovereign design and plan from eternity past. He's not taken by surprise, he's not overpowered. So as Gog reaches the mountains of Israel with this evil and destruction in mind against the people of God, God begins to detail how He will defeat them instead in verses 3-6. through 6. God promises in verse 3 that He will strike the bow out of Gog's left hand and His arrows out of His right hand. This describes how God will disarm Gog. Well, these weapons of war that they bring will be of no effect against God and against His people. Instead of defeating Israel, God and His army, they will fall instead on the mountain of Israel. The whole army will be destroyed, will be put to death. We see that the birds of prey of every sort and the beasts of the field, they will feed on these dead bodies of this massive army that has come against Israel as they lay in the open field after their defeat. This is something Ezekiel will circle back again to in this chapter here soon. But they will, come, they will have come for war. This, this, this large army will have come against Israel for war. They will have prepared themselves. As we saw in chapter eight or 38 last week, God tells them, prepare yourselves. Know what you're going to do. Do not be uh, fooled. Come prepared. And they will. But they will die as soon as God comes and destroys them. Right? As soon as He brings judgment on them, they will die. They will be defeated. And we are to see the the surety of both this battle and defeat there in in, in verse 5. As we read, You you shall fall in the open field, for I have spoken, declares the Lord God. God has spoken it. It will come to pass. According to verse 6, because of the actions of this army, God will also bring judgment, it seems, on the nations who, who sent this army. So not only will the army itself be destroyed there, but those countries which had sent these this army out will also face God's wrath because of their wickedness. They will do so in the form of fire and brimstone which the Lord will bring down on them. They, all of the host of Magog and the coastlands, will know that He is the Lord, we are told. Not just that He is God, or that He is a God, but He is Yahweh. He is the one true God. These lands spoken of here, again, are likely the home countries of of these invading armies. These coastlands could could simply imply the farthest reaches of the world. And this battle at the end of the tribulation period will be one in which many nations and people groups of the world will assemble against Israel and Yahweh. So it's reasonable to think that God's judgment then would, would reach every part of the world, right? As He judges these nations who have sent this army. This is consistent with the judgments described in the book of Revelation toward the end of this seven year period. And Revelation also seems clear that not only do the people of the world understand and know that the great judgments which had fallen on the earth and which were falling on the earth at this point are from God Himself, but their hatred for Him and for His people are what drive them to knowingly come to this battle against Israel and against Yahweh Himself. So if, if, if you, you think about just modern day and you think about a battle in modern day, if, if these news outlets are, are able to give live coverage of, of this battle as it's going on, and they see the destruction taking place of this great massive army, these nations of the world then, as, as judgment is then rained down on them, they will know that Yahweh is bringing the judgment on them as well. That's why we read that they, these nations will know who the Lord is. In verse 7, God continues this theme of, of how this act of deliverance for Israel will then prove that He is God and, and how His holy name will be made known among Israel, specifically here in this verse. Look, this, this act here, this act of God, it is going to be a great act of deliverance, isn't it? I mean, think of how great this army is, and I'll get into this a little bit more here in a moment, but think about how great and massive this army is who have come against Israel. And then think of the great supernatural acts in which God used to deliver them here. Again, there's no army of man that's come to save them, there's no army of themselves that have, are, are protecting them. It is God alone that has brought this deliverance. So they, they will know God is the one who saved them. But think of this also. As we sit here today, Israel claims. To know Yahweh, right? They claim to know the God of the Old Testament. They claim to know Yahweh Himself. They, they still claim to worship the God of their fathers. And as far as I know, there's also no current open declaration or worship of other false gods. No major idol worship, so to speak, as there was a lot of times in the Old Testament. It has not been that way for, for some time. So how do they know Or how do they not know Yahweh as God, and and how will they then know that He is God on this day? Well, they have rejected God Himself in Jesus, right? So to this day, they still reject Jesus. They still reject God. And they will continue to do so until when? Until the end of the tribulation period. And it is Jesus who will then return to defeat this army ultimately. So not only will they know of God's glory after this deliverance because of the supernatural nature of it, but they will know because according to Revelation, Jesus will ultimately return to bring this final defeat of this army. He is the glory of, that Israel will know in this defeat of this army, which was spoken of here in Ezekiel. Not only will Israel know that He is Yahweh, but the nations also will know that He is as well the world will see this truth and they will directly connect it to Israel as Yahweh being the Holy One of Israel, we see here. Why will they make that connection? Well, again, because of the supernatural deliverance that has come for Israel herself. And also because Jesus again will return to Israel and deliver her from these nations, from this army. Then we read in verse 8 that this day will come With a certainty. Again, we we, we get this language as we did earlier in verse 5 Behold, it is coming, and it will be brought about, declares the Lord God. That is the day of which I have spoken. So Yahweh has declared this will happen, and God's word is true, right? It is sure. If God says it is going to happen, it will happen. There's nothing else in this world that can compare to the veracity of God's word. If God's Word is not true, then there's nothing else in all of creation that we can trust. He is not like all of these false gods that try to look into the future and give the future, who look into the future and see all kinds of different possibilities which could happen. But they all depend on what we do and how we act. No, God knows exactly what is going to happen in the future because He has already declared the end from the beginning. God created time as a construct for us. But He's outside of time. He's not bound by it. And think on that. As God created the universe and He began time, He declared the end of it as well, right? So we can be sure that this will happen because God has declared it has happened, or it will happen. Then in verses 9-10, through 10, Ezekiel describes the scene after this battle. And what we read and what we read earlier is just one of utter destruction. First, let's see the the absolute massive size of this army which will come against Israel. Now, Israel is not a large nation, right? Israel currently has a population roughly around 9.5 million people. New York City alone has nearly 9 million people within it. Now, a forewarning, I didn't do the math on this, but from what I read and based on timelines that we are given in this chapter... We can have a rough estimated guess on the number of corpses, perhaps, which would take seven months to bury. And, And a rough guess is around 360 million people dead, 360 million corpses which will die at this battle, which will have come against Israel at this time. To give you a baseline for how many people that is, the current population of America, the entire nation of America, is 332 million people, roughly. So basically, if you took a million people of Israel during this period of time, burying two corpses a day, then 360 million corpses could be buried within 180 days, so roughly six months, which is kind of how that, that number, is, I think, is, is, is thought of. Now, we have no idea how many people will actually be burying corpses... Each day at this time, nor do we know how many they will bury within a day. But I just wanted to give you kind of a rough idea of, of the large, massive nature of this army. That should give you at least a, you know, some context there. Again, though, the picture we see here is one of absolute destruction, right? An annihilation of this massive army. Ezekiel says that Israel will go out after this battle. They will make fires of the weapons which came against them. They will burn shields, bucklers, bows, arrows, clubs, spears, which all lay in the open field. Now, if you're like me, maybe the obvious question is, is this, little, still, is this literally going to happen? Is this still yet future event literal in the sense of these, these weapons? I mean, are these literal weapons which are going to come against Israel... And, and they will burn these, wep- these shields and bucklers and bows and arrows. Well, it, it's possible that this is the exact description of the weapons which will come against Israel in the future day. We can't think of it that way now probably because of the technology that we have. But remember, this will be at the end of the tribulation period, I believe. And there will have been a large number of judgments will have come, that will have come on the world by this point. There will be seven bowls, seals, and trumpets of judgment which will have occurred during this seven... Year period And those will include major natural disasters. They will include war, disease, famine, supernatural phenomena. So it's, it's very possible that the world will have been knocked back for lack of better ways to put it, several centuries technolo- technology-wise and, and weapons-wise, and, and that might be all the weapons they have at this point are just you know the, the weapons of, of, uh, of yesteryear. And so it's possible that this actual or this army will come against Israel with these very weapons. But it is also possible that these aren't literal descriptions of the war and weapons which Israel will see against them in this day. Look, these were obvious descriptions of the weapons known to Ezekiel and to the people in Israel when this was written, right? The people in Ezekiel's day knew these weapons. There's no way that the audience which received this letter originally... Ezekiel included, would have known or even understood the words gun or drone or airplane or even grenade. So it is very possible that God described these weapons in terms which they would understand and that at that time, but these weapons will be modern weapons which will actually come against Israel. The point for us though here is that there will be so many people that have come against Israel and so many weapons that they will will have left behind that they can make fires for seven years or they will have fuel for seven years from these weapons, from this army. That is a significant amount, obviously. Again, just to add to the massive size and destruction of this, of this army. We see here that the ones who had come to plunder Israel, this army, this great army, had come to plunder Israel according to chapter 38. They instead are the ones who were plundered in this great victory by God. Ezekiel then continues to tell of the resounding defeat and the number defeated in verses 11-16. through And we're told on that day, this day of defeat, and the days after, God will give Gog a burial place there in Israel in what is called here the Valley of Travelers east of the sea. Now there's obviously been a lot of speculation as to the exact location of this burial place, but most consider this to be an area east of the Dead Sea, which today would probably be Jordan or around Jordan. But this valley, and it may be the valley of Megiddo itself, which does lie east of the Dead Sea, will be so full of the dead that it will block any traveler who's trying to come through. There's no, there will be no way to come through. This valley will then be called the valley of Hemingog, or the valley of the multitude of Gog. And there will be so many to bury again that it will take seven months for Israel to bury the dead there. And God says that they will do this in order to cleanse the land. According to verse 13, the people of the land or the people of Israel will be the ones doing the burying here. Now the ESV reads that this burying will bring renown to them on this day. But that could also be translated, it will bring a memorial to them. So the point being that this act of cleansing the land, the burying, this, this massive effort to, to cleanse and bury these dead, uh, this slain army, they will, it will remind them, the people of Israel, of the glory of Yahweh and His great act of deliverance. It will be a memorial to them in verse 19, verse 14 the, the people of Israel will set apart men from Israel then who will travel after the seven months of burying after that is over they will set apart men who will travel uh, and where people other people who have are in the area they will see bones that are still remaining they will put a marker there and these men will come around they will pick these bones up and they will bring them back to be buried they're designated, designated designated sorry specifically for this act now you would think that it would be obvious who was dead, right? I mean, it's a, a army of, massive army of dead people. I mean, there's a corpse there. You'd think there'd be no question about who's dead and what needed to be buried. But remember, this is after a, a period of seven months, right? So, uh, I mean, after seven months, there will be natural decay. There will be rotting. The, these beasts and fowl of the, the air will have come and destroyed many of the bodies. It's very possible that some of these bones have been taken or carried off long distances by some of these animals over these seven months. But again, it seems like everyone will be instructed to place a sign or a marker to assist these barriers so they can more easily find these bones and bring them back and bury them in this valley of Hammond Gog. Then we get to verse 17. Let's read 17-24. through 24. As for you, son of man, thus says the Lord God, speak to the birds of every sort and to all beasts of the field, assemble and come, gather from all around to the sacrificial feast that I am preparing for you, a great sacrificial feast on the mountains of Israel, and you shall eat flesh and drink blood. You shall eat the flesh of the mighty and drink the blood of the princes of the earth, of rams, of lambs, and of he goats, of bulls, all of them fat beasts of Bashan. And you shall eat, to fat, eat fat till you are filled, and drink blood till you are drunk at the sacrificial feast that I am preparing for you. And you shall be filled at my table with horses and charioters, with mighty men and all kinds of warriors, declares the Lord God." And I will set My glory among the nations, and all the nations shall see My judgment that I have executed, and My hand that I have laid on them. The house of Israel shall know that I am the Lord their God from that day forward. And the nations, nations shall know that the house of Israel went into captivity for their iniquity, because they dealt so treacherously with Me, that I hid My face from them and gave them into the hand of their adversaries, and they all fell by the sword. I dealt with them according to their uncleanness and their transgressions, and hid My face from them, so beginning of verses seventeen through twenty four, we, we we start. We get a little bit of a step back here in this process of of this aftermath. As God states that He had prepared a feast with this army, right? This is very similar to what we read in Revelation chapter nineteen seventeen. We're following the defeat of that great army at Armageddon. We read this. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead Come gather for the great supper of God, to eat of the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. So in our passage in Ezekiel, same thing. The the beasts and birds are told to gather and be ready for this massacre that is to come at the hand of Yahweh we are to see here that none of this rebel army who followed Gog is going to be spared. The princes, the mighty, the, charoters, the, the, charoters, the uh all kinds of warriors, they are all going to be part of this sacrificial feast. So this defeat then, we are to see it to be thorough and complete. In verse 20, just as in Revelation, we see that this is a feast or a table that God Himself has prepared, right? He's prepared this table for the birds and the, the beasts of the field. Look, God brought this army there by His sovereign will. He has set then and prepared the table, and the wild animals then will feast on this great army who dared to come against Yahweh and the people of Israel. Then in verses 21-22, through 22, we again see a reference to the, the glory of Yahweh coming or being set. To me, this can be another reference than to the return of, of Jesus Himself. But this time, His glory will be set among the nations, Right? For all nations they will will see this destruction, they will see his return. So not only will Israel will see him, not only will Israel see him and and see his glory, but the, the whole world, all of the nations will. They will see his judgment that came against this rebel army who dared to come against him. From that day forward we read that the nation of Israel, they will know that Yahweh is their Lord, their God. This only makes sense, really, I think, if this is at the end of the tribulation period. Again, there has never been a time and never will be a time until the end of that period where Israel will return entirely to God and never fall away again. And, and we do know that this will happen there at the end of the tribulation period, at the end of that seven years. So God states in verses 23-24 through 24 why Israel has been allowed to suffer so harshly for many years. So the question might be asked, and, and probably has been asked, if Israel if they were truly God's chosen and covenant people, why have they suffered for so long? Why have they been separated from their land? Why have they not had these promises? Why are they not the people of God faithfully today? And Why has God allowed that? Well, because God doesn't just allow sin and rebellion to go, right? Even for His chosen earthly people here in Israel, their demise, their punishment... It ultimately it resulted in mocking by other nations to begin with, right? I mean, other nations mocked their defeat, but in the end, their defeat. I mean, their their demise early on, their punishment, but their restoration because of that will show the glory of God. It will show His power. It will show His faithfulness. Now, to to me, it seems very purposeful that God would tell us that nations. The nations of the world will know that the house of Israel went into captivity because of their iniquity on this day spoken of here in our chapter. I think this clearly establishes that God is contrasting the nations within the world and the actual nation of Israel. Right? Only the literal nation of Israel was sent into captivity because of their rebellion to God. If this is the church or, or the elect, which is Ezekiel is speaking of here, then why is it said that they were sent into captivity for their iniquity and how they were dealt, how, because of how they dealt treacherously with God? How would it be said of them they were given into the hands of their adversaries and they had fallen by the sword because of their iniquity? How can it be said that the Lord hid His face from the church and the elect because of their transgressions? None of this, in my opinion, squares with what we know of the redemption of believers during the church age, right? Oh, finally, in verses 25 through 29, we read of, of this restoration, despite the captivity, despite their treacherous sin and iniquity which they brought against God, God still promises restoration. In verses 25, verse 25 we begin, "Therefore thus says the Lord God now, I will restore the fortunes of Jacob." And have mercy on the whole house of Israel, and I will be jealous for my holy name. They shall forget their shame and all the treachery they have practiced against me, when they dwell securely in their land, with none to make them afraid. When I have brought them back from the peoples and gathered them from their enemies' lands, and through them have vindicated my holiness in the sight of many nations, then they shall know that I am the Lord their God. Because I sent them into exile among the nations, and then assembled them into their own land, I will leave none of them remaining among the nations anymore, and I will not hide My face anymore from them when I pour out My Spirit upon the house of Israel, declares the Lord God. So this restoration, it is happening in close connection with what's happened in chapter 38 and 39, right? This restoration is said to be the restoration of Jacob's fortune, fortunes, and that mercy is to be on the whole house of Israel. In this restoration, Israel will forget their shame and their treachery which they had done toward God. God will also give them their land back to dwell safely and securely. They will have no need of any fear any longer. As opposed to the false sense of security that they had with that peace agreement with the Antichrist, they will have real peace and security with Jesus. After having seen such a great defeat by God of this massive army and then have Jesus Himself dwelling with them, they will know that nothing and no one can turn against them or can turn against Christ Himself. No one can defeat them. So there will be no fear. They will be fully secure and safe. This great miracle of gathering Israel from the the many nations after having scattered them will be proof of God's love and faithfulness. All of the people of Israel will be gathered at this point. I don't know how that's going to work exactly, but God will never hide His face again from them. Instead, He will pour out His Spirit as we see upon the house of Israel. And this is clearly New Covenant language. But this is language that cannot be applied to the church within the context of this passage. Look, this is actual war we see here, right? This is the actual nation of Israel which we... See being saved. Those saved now during the church, we receive the Spirit of God at the point of conversion, right? They have received the Spirit, the people of, of, of the church have respe- received the Spirit at different times over the course of the past 2,000 years, roughly. And, and God has, has not hidden His face from the church. And then one day He's going to reveal all of a sudden His face to the church, right? So this can only apply to the nation of Israel. Further, Believers in the church age, they they know at the point of conversion that God is their Lord. We believe that believers cannot lose their salvation. So at the point of conversion, believers know that for eternity, Yahweh is Lord. Israel, on the other hand, rejects Him today, but not in this day. On this day, He will pour His Spirit on them as a nation, and they will never forget that He is their Lord. So, as we wrap this up, just a couple of points of conclusion and application for us today and we'll be done. One, I think we see this clearly. God is sovereign over all of His creation. We, even as His children of God though, we can lose sight of that at times. I mean, sometimes we forget that. Sometimes we, we don't apply that in our lives. We don't live that practically. But, but think of this as even more so. The, the pagan and godless nations of the world, they never really give thought to how involved Yahweh is in His creation. How involved He is and how concerned He is for His people. Proverbs 16.33 says this, Though "...the lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. There's nothing done, nothing thought of, which God does not have sovereign, sovereignty over." We also read in Proverbs, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it where he will. So these leaders, whether they be wicked or not, they are ultimately fulfilling God's will. We need to remember that not only in future, but we need to remember that in our present time as well. There's nothing that can be done by any leader that will take God by surprise. And ultimately, he's working all of their decisions out, whether they be evil or not, He's working them out for His good will at the end. So let's take faith in that. Let's be comforted in that. Second, God is faithful to His promises. It, it appears and looks as though Israel will never be a part of God's plans again if we just look at it today and look at it through the really the past several thousand years. They've done everything in the world to deserve, humanly speaking, to be cast aside to never be a part of God's plans again never enjoy his peace his promises his prosperity but he has promised those things to them he has made a covenant with them and he will fulfill his promises and that is important to us because we are also a part of that new covenant promise right we have been grafted in we have been made promises through that new covenant As children of God, as the elect of God, we have every reason to believe God's Word, to believe His promises to us will be fulfilled. Even if it doesn't feel that way sometimes, even if from just a human perspective, it seems like all is lost, we never need to fear that God's promises will not come true. Third, we see clearly here that God's name and His his holiness, it's going to be vindicated. I've mentioned it already, but Israel polluted the name of God in their rebellion. They did it with their idolatry, and, and so God judged them accordingly, right? God had to judge them. And, and in this judgment, his name it was denied and, and really mocked or polluted again as these pagan nations around them thought and declared, really, that Yahweh, he can't protect you. Look, look what happened. He cannot protect his people. He's no God at all. They, they believe that their false gods had power over the one true God. They had power in this, this victory. And really, this mentality has continued until today is in each war, pagan nations believe that they are mightier than the people of God. They are mighty, mightier than Israel. They will destroy Israel. Israel herself relies on other nations today, America included, to help defend and protect her. But in this day, in this coming day, no one will need to aid or defend her including Israel herself. And the victory will be so complete there will be no question who Yahweh is. I I like how Lamar Cooper talked about this vindication of God's holy name. He said that God's reputation is at stake. Thus, just as holiness required Him to judge Israel for rebellion, so also it requires Him to regather and restore it so the restoration of Israel is not only a display of God's love and power on behalf of His people, but also an event necessary to the preservation of the honor of the true God. And that will happen. He will vindicate His name and His holiness. Fourth, God will have victory. We've seen that here. Eventually, God's patience with Satan's attempts in these pagan nations attempts and these people groups to destroy His people will be at an end. That that patience will end and He will come and He will have victory. That brings me to my fifth and final point. The King is coming. Make no mistake. The King is coming. Therefore, God has highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That is coming. Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. The question is are we ready to receive the King? Are we ready to see Him? Are we willing and do we want to bow the knee to Him and confess Him as Lord? I pray. If we are sitting here as believers, professing believers and children of God, that, that we want that. We're praying for that. If we're not, if, if you sit here today and, and you don't know Christ, you, you haven't professed His name as Savior and as Lord, make no mistake, He is coming. And if you are standing against Him, He's coming with judgment. But if you're standing against ready to bow the knee because of your love and your knowledge of who He is, it will be a glorious day. It will be a wonderful day that we are to look forward to, we are to pray for, and we are to desire. Stand with me.